Scripture reading this morning comes from John 16, 16 through 24. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and a little while and you will see me again. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Um, I was reminded as I have uh, was working on this message, and you'll see the point of the story I'm about to share in a moment. Years ago, I was in seminary in preaching class, and uh, in the, the way my preaching class went, we were given the opportunity uh, to preach for seven minutes. All right, so a seven-minute sermon, uh, and for that seven-minute sermon, no notes at all. So we had to stand up only with our Bible, with a video camera on us, with other students in the class, and preach as they evaluated us with no notes. Well, I decided the only way I could ever do that would be to preach a sermon from one verse. Well, that is a, an exegetical no-no. You should never preach a sermon from one verse because cults are formed out of one verse, and I know that. But... It was the only way I thought I could remember, so I preached a sermon from Philippians 1.6. Philippians 1.6, that great verse, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so I had three points to my sermon. You can be confident because God started the work. You can be confident because God finishes what he starts. And you can be confident because Jesus is coming back. Now that'll preach, won't it? Well, it will if you remember. I forgot my second point. So I'm up there. I've got only one verse. I've got three points. And I'm trying to remember. And for the life of me, I couldn't remember my second point. So I made something up. And so I get to that point. I make something up on my second point. I'm thinking, dear God, let not the professor realize that I totally forgot my second point because I've already failed. I preached from one verse. And if I, you can't remember three points from one verse, you should like find another job. And so I finished and they started doing their evaluation. And Dr. McDill, he kind of held back. And then he said these words, did you have a second point to this sermon? 
I said, yes, sir, I did. And he said, did you forget it? And I'm like, I'm done. <laughs> I did. I completely forgot the second point. It was horrible. Um, the reason I say all that is to say um, we are never supposed to say the word point even when we're preaching. But this sermon today has one it only has one. Most sermons do have two or three, and they're, they're, but this has one. And it has one because I am convinced that Jesus in his conversation here is trying to make a single point. He is trying to make a single point, and I will say to you, it's cliche, but getting it will make you better, and not getting it will make you bitter. And some of you are on the precipice of being better or bitter this morning, and you're sitting in this room or you're watching online. Getting it will give you hope. Not getting it will leave you hopeless. And here it is. Weep now, rejoice later. Rejoice now, weep later. This is what Jesus says. Weep now, rejoice later. Rejoice now, weep later. A little while, he says in verse 16, to these 11 now disciples who have gathered, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. And the disciples didn't know what he meant. Uh, they've been with him for three years, and they don't understand what he means that he is going to be uh, out of their sight. Don't uh, forget that they have given up everything to follow him. Peter and James, uh, John, they're no longer fishing. Um, uh, Matthew is no longer collecting taxes. They have given up their lives and their livelihoods to follow Jesus. And Judas is gone, which has confused them. And now Jesus says, a little while, and you will not see me. And so they begin talking among themselves about what Jesus means by that. Uh, they ask, uh, Jesus, what do you mean? Or they don't ask Jesus. They ask one another, what does he mean by a little while and we won't see him, and then a little while and we will? And, and they say, because I'm going to the Father. Why, what is Jesus talking about? Let me ask you a question. This is a show of hands question. How many of you have conversations with yourself? Raise your hand. Absolutely. All of us do at different points. Some of them are more pronounced. My wife has told me she, ha she had no clue until we spend more time together how much I talk out loud to myself. I just do a lot. But we have what psychologists call self-talk. We talk to ourselves all day long. As a matter of fact, the second song that we sang this morning touched on that. I will preach to my doubts. I will sing to my fears. I will preach to my doubts. We talk to ourselves all the time. And just like Jesus overheard the conversation among the disciples, he through the Spirit overhears yours too. He hears the talk that you have in your mind. If you're like me, sometimes you go to pray and your mind is everywhere, isn't it? 
You're trying to focus, but your mind is bouncing here and bouncing there. I, I'm reading a book. I've, I'm nowhere, I've just started it uh, by John Coe and Kyle Strobel, both who work at Viola and uh, teach there. Uh, and the book is uh, simply called Where Prayer Becomes Real. It's brand new. just came out this year. Um, the first chapter fascinated me in all the books I've read and have read a lot on prayer. I've never seen this, but it asks this question, chapter one, what if a wandering mind is a gift? What if a wandering mind is a gift? The premise of the chapter I discovered and I've begun to put it into practice is that when you go to pray and your mind wanders, go with it because your mind is wondering where your heart is living and Jesus might just want to speak into that. Uh, wherever your heart is, is where your mind is wondering and, and don't pretend, right? This is where prayer becomes real. Uh, the, the subtitle, how honesty with God transforms your soul. Don't try to force that and pretend that all of these jumbled up things aren't going on in there. It's just the Holy Spirit knows maybe uh, we ought to let him eavesdrop in. That's what Jesus did here with the disciples. He hears their talk among themselves, and he decides to insert himself in that. And so this has been freeing for me as I put it into practice. Let me just give you a quote from page 25. Prayer is not a place to be good. It is a place to be honest. That ought to cause some of us to go, prayer is not a place to perform. It is a place to present. Prayer is not a place to be right, it is a place to be known. Prayer is not a place to prove your worth, it is a place to receive worth and offer yourself in truth. I'm growing as I'm learning to pray differently at this point in my life from uh, uh, just one chapter at this point. Uh, Jesus inserts himself and he says, truly, truly, I say to you. So he hears them, he overhears them, and he's concerned enough and, and to say, truly, truly, I say to you. So prepared this sermon a couple weeks ago, and I was working on it, and I made the horrible mistake of doing a group text to our staff to ask the question, when you uh, think of something being true, completely true, uh, what are idioms, that sayings that mean that? Well, for 30 minutes, the staff blew up everybody, all of our phones with meaningless banter. It, it was not very profitable. I, I gleaned out of all of it a few sayings. And you know these, truly, truly means you can take it to the bank. That's what Jesus, when he says that means, it means one of the staff members says, you bet your what? Bottom dollar. That's what truly means. Truly means you can bet the farm on that. You've heard that. Uh, tried and true, or it's as good as done. When Jesus says truly, truly, he, he invites them to lean in and he's going to speak in and what does he say? You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. At the same time, two things are happening. Somebody's weeping and somebody's rejoicing, and it's happen, happening simultaneously. 
Jesus, when he says you can take, you can take it to the bank, you can bet your bottom dollar, you can bet the farm on this, what is it that he's saying you can do that with? Weep now, rejoice later, rejoice now, weep later. He then illustrates his point. When a woman is given birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. He illustrates with childbirth. Even though Jesus, of course, never experienced this, he knows from human experience this reality. Our daughter Hannah had her gallbladder removed a couple weeks ago. She had surgery, so she was recovering a bit at the house while Michael was working. I was sitting there, having worked on this sermon, when uh, Hannah said to uh, Wendy, uh, she said, uh, Mom, um, have a question. When you have a baby and you come home from the hospital and you're hurting so badly, how do you take care of your baby while you're hurting? And Wendy thought for a moment, not knowing what I had been working on, and she said, you know, as I think back, I think the joy of bringing the baby home somehow causes the pain not to feel so painful. And I looked at her and I said, and Jesus would agree. She looked at me like, what are you doing? Because uh, maybe as a surprise to you, I don't sit around talking Jesus at home all the time. Like, I just don't. We're, we're, you know, we're a real family, and we do real stuff and, and, and act like idiots half the time. So, uh, and she said, what do you mean? I said, that's exactly what I'm working on. Uh, childbirth is weep now, rejoice later, isn't it? As a matter of fact, uh, so I adopted Hannah, as many of you know, but, but Trent, I was there when he was born, and, um, uh, and Wendy is in full-blown labor. The doctor's running late. The nurse is, uh, you know, doing everything she's supposed to do, and I'm by Wendy's head. As I promised her, I would be patting her head and, and saying, whatever you say to a woman who's going through that, none of which seems to suffice. <laughs> and so I'm saying that, and Wendy kept looking at me, and she said, are you Okay to me. And I'm like, I'm fine. And then she said that evidently so many times that the nurse finally looked at her and said, listen, you're having the baby. Why are you asking him if he's okay? And Wendy said, oh, he passes out. <laughs> Which is true. I do, right? Which is true. I do. And I just have to go on record on video to say that Alan Michael almost passed out when he gave blood this week. So I'm no longer the fainting goat of the staff. Um, <laughs> we've moved that, 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 designation has been moved to Alan Michael. When you see him, as folks dutifully did in the early service to his chagrin, just mention that to him. Just say, how was that? But at any rate, the reality was that my wife went through great anguish, uh, as any woman does to have Trent, but the joy she felt afterward was so real. This, Jesus says to his disciples, could be a qualifying reality of life. Weep now, rejoice later. Rejoice now and weep later. Why would they weep? Because in that period of time where Jesus goes out of their sight, before he does, he's going to be beaten, mercilessly, hair pulled from his face. This is their, their friend. This is the one that Peter declared to be the 
the Christ. He will be unfairly tried. He will be crucified, which was the electric chair of that day. And he'll be buried. And except for their recollection of Lazarus, every buried person they've ever met stayed buried. Stayed buried. And so, uh, so when you realize that, this is where they are. He says, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Now, I must say to you, when I read this, I missed it. I missed it. I read over it, and any pastor who does homework is grateful for men and women who write commentaries, who spend their lives studying a tiny section of Scripture, their whole life. That's all they do. They're never on a stage or seldom. They're professors, but they may study just the Gospel of John or maybe just the genre of the Gospels. And any pastor, you just lean in on these men and women who do that. And, And so what I missed, the commentator caught. Let me read it again. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. If you write in your Bibles, underline, I will see you again. Not you will see me again. You say, Jerry, that seems so nuanced. What does Jesus mean by that? I alluded to this a few weeks ago. It is one thing for a famous person to be in this room and all of us to see that famous person, isn't it? But it is a completely different thing for that famous person to be in the room and call out one of our names. We all know who the famous person is, but if the famous person calls our name, we go from knowing to being what? known. When Jesus says to them, he doesn't lead out by saying, you will see me again. He says, I will see you again. Well, that happened. John 20, John records it. Verses 19 and 20, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, this is Resurrection Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews Jesus came and stood among them. The disciples are cowering in fear. Jesus is unafraid. And he comes and he stands among them and said to them, peace be with you. They didn't go looking for Jesus. He came looking for them. Amen? And there is a difference. You see, it is one thing for me to go looking for Jesus, but what I want to say to you this morning is that if you have ever come to faith in Jesus Christ, it is not because you woke up one day looking for him. It is because he walked up and down looking for you, and he found you. That's why you sit here today as a follower of Jesus, because he came looking for you. 
When I, on a Tuesday night, went as I always did with my dad to revival services, though dad wasn't preaching that one, and I sat on row two and heard that preacher preach that night, I had no idea that the Holy Spirit, by his grace, had an appointment with me, and that somewhere in the middle of that sermon, he would arrest my soul, make me aware of my utter sinfulness, though as a nerdy 15-year-old, I had done nothing, nothing on the list that would cause any of you to be ashamed or embarrassed of me. But I realized that night I was utterly sinful, and God, by his grace, arrested me that night. I didn't go there looking for him, but when I went there, guess who came looking for me? Jesus Everybody who comes to faith in him, that's how you come. When that young man after the 5 p.m. service uh, uh, said, I need to talk to you last week, and he and I went into an office and we sat down. I said, tell me what's going on. He and I have had numerous conversations. He's been in this church for three years. He said, Jerry, I have completely wandered away from the faith. I have become atheistic in my views. But tonight, while sitting here and you preaching about Peter, something started to happen here that I can't fight. I can't fight it anymore, and I need to do something about it. Well, who did that? Well, Jesus came looking for him, didn't he? Jesus arrested him. Jesus drew him in. Uh, my favorite example of this in Scripture has to be that wee little man. What was his name? Zacchaeus, right? You learned that little song uh, growing up. Zacchaeus was a... And a... There you go, right? He was a wee little man, and, and, and a wee little man was he. And so what did he do? He climbed up in a tree for the Savior he wanted to see. But Jesus, when he came into Jericho, of the throngs of people so crowded that Zacchaeus knew he couldn't stand among uh, people taller than he and see, Zac see Jesus, Jesus out of all of them did what? He called him by name and said, Zacchaeus, come here. And he went in and he ate lunch with a notorious hated, filthy rich tax collector. And all the Pharisees are bantering outside. I mean, does Jesus know who he's having lunch with? Does he really know what he's doing? If he did, he wouldn't be associated with such a filthy man. He wouldn't be doing all of this. But something happened over lunch that completely arrested Zacchaeus' soul, didn't it? He comes out. He now stands tall. The crowds are still gathered. And he stands up and he says, everybody that I've cheated I'll pay you back four times what I cheated you out of. Why? Because he was in a tree and saw Jesus? No, because he was in a tree and Jesus what? Saw him. Nothing will change your life like Jesus seeing you. Nothing will change you like that. And Jesus says, no one will take your joy from you. Weep now for a while, rejoice later for eternity. Don Grindstaff, will you bring my phone? I think it's right on the seat there. I meant to bring it up. Rejoice now for a while. Weep later 
for eternity. I thought of this this morning. A woman that some of you know who attended our church a year or so ago lives in Texas struggling, battling fiercely, now cancer. Beautiful young woman, accomplished professional um, diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in her 50s. I remembered this text. I went looking for it, and it says to Wendy and me in a group text, bless you both. I don't have the words, Wendy and Jerry, except to say I know the Lord placed you in my life for a reason. And then this is what she writes. Studying the book of Psalms, quote from a study guide, I imagine all affliction is not directly related to sin. However, it is an occasion when a spiritual accounting with God should be taken and in which the believer should be inclined to strengthen himself in God. And then she writes, I was thanking God for this journey last night. And then as I listened to myself, I actually said out loud, Debbie, are you crazy? Well, maybe. But I have an undeniable peace that surpasses all understanding. I am able to find a reason to smile in spite of cancer. Your prayers give me strength, she finishes. Debbie weeps but has joy. That's what Jesus said. No one will take your joy from you. Cancer will not take your joy from you. A miscarriage will not take your joy. Getting unfairly fired will not take your joy. The untimely divorce, which was not your doing, need not take your joy. The battle against sin, against lust, need not take your joy. No one, Jesus says, will take your joy. So you're asking a good question, how do I live this out? I want to be this person who, regardless of what I face and regardless of how much I weep now, I I see the joy. I I see the joy later, even if I can't see it now. Out on the horizon, joy waits. Uh, Jesus answers your question in that day. What day? The day after his resurrection. That's what he means. In that day. You see, just a big word alert here. Uh, The day, this phrase, Jesus' disciples were used to this. It's an eschatological word. It refers to the end of time. You see, the last days haven't gotten started in the last year and a half because of COVID. 
No, the last days began when Jesus resurrected. That was the beginning of what scholars call the eschaton, the end of time as we know it. Everything changed when Jesus resurrected. It was a brand new day. You say, Jerry, how do you know that? Like, how do you know? And what brought it? What brought it was Jesus' death and his resurrection. When Jesus died and when he resurrected, everything turned immediately. And everything changed, even how his disciples were to talk to him. He says it here. He says, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, there's that word again. I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. In that day, you will ask nothing. What day? In the last days, all of these days, Jesus will not be here, he said to his disciples. I will be gone, but the, he's told them he's sending the Spirit, and by the Spirit's help, they will pray to the Father in Jesus' name. You will talk to the Father. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Why? He's there right? No need to ask in his name. Just ask him. Jesus is standing there. But from now on, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So how do you live this out? By prayer. And you don't need to overcomplicate that prayer. It doesn't need to be overcomplicated. You pray. You pray in Jesus' name to the Father. You ask for what you need. You, uh, you ask. Now, Prayer takes all kinds of forms, but years ago, I heard somebody refer to this. I've never forgotten it, and the person talked about torpedo prayers. A torpedo prayer is a prayer offered in an instant for perhaps an unexpected thing, maybe an unexpected phone call or an unexpected encounter. It's a torpedo prayer. Well, well what, what do you need to say? Jesus might be enough. Just, Jesus, I need your help. Father, help me now. Is that enough? If, if your kid is drowning in a pool, do you need them to articulate their condition to you? What one word do they need to ask? That, that's a torpedo prayer. Uh, ask. Just in the moment, ask. In the moment, direct it to the Lord. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Even though Jesus will be absent, they will be full of joy. They will pray as if he is there because they are praying to the uh, crucified and resurrected Lord. Wow. I've been on vacation this week, which has been good. Um, kind of a vacation when you take your son and his three friends who've graduated high school, it's, it's a trip. And so, um, but I did finish reading a couple books, and 
This one uh, by Metaxas called Seven More Men. It's quite good. All of his uh, that I've read, I've found to be good. Um, This chapter is about someone I've never read about, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a, a Russian dissident in the First World War era. He actually fought Uh, for the Soviet Union military, but began to write letters back uh, that were were discovered by the KGB, and he was arrested and imprisoned uh, a sentence of eight years. He describes his imprisonment. Were it not for him, we wouldn't know what happened in those awful uh, years of being strip-searched, of it being bitterly cold, of endless questions of food that looked like pig slop. His entire body was shaved and he was forced to stay awake day and night when he first arrived. He says things got a little better when he was assigned to a different cell. His cell, which was intended to house 25 men, had 100 men in it. In the different cell, at least he had a bed or a mattress and a pillow and a blanket. For his first tenure there, he had none of that. He was now allowed to sleep if he could manage to do so under the light of a 200-watt bulb that hung right over his head. He had four days of interrogation, day and night, when he arrived. He lost so much weight, as you could imagine, he became sick. Sentenced to eight years. And then on top of that, he got cancer as an inmate. Uh, A malignant tumor on his groin. Uh, He could scarcely believe, Metaxas writes, that after enduring seven vicious hungry years in the prison, mostly working in the freezing cold, that he would die of cancer at the age of 33 but he would have surgery for his cancer. And he writes in his own words, following an operation, I am lying in the surgical ward of a camp hospital. I cannot move. I am hot and feverish, but nonetheless, my thoughts do not dissolve into delirium. And I am grateful to Dr. Boris Cornfield, who is sitting beside my cot and talking to me all evening. Well, who is Dr. Cornfield? Strangely enough, He was a Jew who had become a Christian. And Solzhenitsyn was an atheist. And he sat by him and he talked about Jesus all evening. Well, that night, nobody knows. Did somebody hear the conversation? But something happened. And Cornfield, Dr. Cornfield, received a blow to the head that ended his life. Dr. Cornfield had no idea that that was his last conversation he would ever have with anyone, nor did he know the power of it and what God would do with it. His words did not go unheeded. Solzhenitsyn writes, it was only when I lay there on rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Gradually, 
It was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Jesus saw him. He says, it was granted to me to carry away from my prison years on my bent back, which nearly broke beneath its load, this essential experience, how a human being becomes evil and good in the intoxication of youthful successes, I had felt myself to be infallible, and I was therefore cruel. He said, in the usurp of power, I was a murderer and an oppressor. And then this is what he writes. That is why I turn back to the years of my imprisonment and say, sometimes to the astonishment of those about me, and I quote him, bless you, prison. I have served enough time there. I nourished my soul there, and I say without hesitation, bless you, prison, for having been in my life. Weep now. Rejoice later. Our team is going to come back. We sang a song that perhaps did not sink in to you. But I want us to sing it again. And it wasn't the first one we sang, it was the second song that we sang. And in this song, it goes like this, you were faithful then and you'll be faithful when? Now. Some of you are sitting here and you need his faithfulness. You're battling. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing this song as a testimony. If you, I don't want anybody to stand up unless... Can give witness to this. You say, what do you mean? We're going to sit and sing. But if while we're singing, a situation comes to your mind where God was faithful then and you trust he'll be faithful now, just stand. And if you're sitting here and you're saying, I don't have enough faith to stand, it's all right. We'll stand for you. Make sense? Let's sing. Stay seated. Until by conviction you can stand and then stand.